Hello beautiful people. Welcome to episode number 28 of Photo Country with Rajiv. As photographers we've all heard of the zone system. But I have always wondered how to implement it in the digital age. As I was researching the subject, I stumbled on a video by a photographer called Gary Ray Rush. Gary is based out of Toronto, Canada. He is not only an accomplished portrait and commercial photographer, but also a great mentor and educator in photography as well. So I really wanted to talk to Gary about his experiments with the zone system. Are you guys ready? Let's get into this conversation. Welcome to the show. Thanks for your time. You're welcome. So, like we were talking about, I stumbled onto your video while searching for inputs on the zone system. How did you get introduced to the zone system? Well, that's that's a really good question. I'm a huge fan of someone called Ansel Adams. Ansel, really just a brilliant photographer, started off as a young kid in the western part of the United States, Yosemite National Park, taking pictures there. And he started developing very rapidly as a photographer. He was originally a concert pianist or at least trained to be a concert pianist. Music has notation. So as a piano player, he had to study notation and the language of music which is on uh sheets in front of him that so he could take a composer and study a score and replicate it on the piano. As photography was developing back in those days, there wasn't really a language on how to talk about it amongst your peers or maybe with someone that's printing for you or something along those lines. So it was really a new science. So what he did was he came up with a very simple language Angel Adams did with Fred Archer was a partner of his they were studying together or teaching together rather in California. And so they came up with a way of just talking about photography in terms of the zone system and it can be made very complex but it's really not and if you can count to 10 you can really understand the zone system because what he did was he really broke down the whitest white is 10 the blackest black is 0 and if you just do gradient tones in between that you end up with 11 zones 0 to 10 which is 11 zones and that's a way of thinking about a print or a photograph that you're taken zone 5 is smack down dab in the middle of 0 to 10 And so that's zone 5 is what your meter on your camera is really trying to achieve when it gives you a correct exposure. It's trying to average all the, those values, all the light that you're gathering into the camera, the brightest light from the sun and the deepest darkest light from shadows and so on. It's trying to average it out to a mid-tone zone which is a zone 5. And so the zone system it uh, appealed to me because first I was a fan of Angel's work, his wonderful landscapes. of California and Yosemite National Park and just everything he did he just seemed to breathe life into his captures in a way that really appealed to me visually he seemed to be able to pull out the soul of a rock or a tree or a mountain or a place you you felt the spirit of the place and he's doing that somehow with just with black and white tones on a photograph really when you think of it it's silver emulsion prints that he was making and so the silver is either white or some sort of gray or black and there's form which is the composition of the nature that he's shooting but he i would get this look in his work i always felt an emotional impact and so i got curious how is he doing this like how is it i was as a why are his exposures so compelling to me 
And why are the prints, when you see them in person, which I have, going to museums and seeking out shows that he's done, the prints are beautiful. Right? They're just strikingly beautiful. So that's how I got interested in the zoom system. And was it analogous to your career as a photographer? Did you find this early into your career or was it midway? Since I started, I opened my first studio in 1995. So digital actually wasn't a thing, believe it or not, back then. There weren't any digital cameras that I knew of. I mean, I'm sure there was someone working on them somewhere. But, you know, in reality, as a in consumer land, there weren't any digital cameras. So, yeah, so I was shooting analog and I was really happy with it. Love analog photography, love film, love the darkroom. I had a darkroom, a beautiful darkroom built into my basement and with a beautiful Bessler enlarger. And some of your audience out there may... I'm sure know about dark rooms and you've probably noticing a little bit of gray on your beard. You've probably <laughs> know what that's about. I loved film photography and on my days off, again, I opened my studio in 95. I did mostly actors, headshots and musicians. So I was shooting a lot of entertainers and doing their promotional shots all in black and white because it was more affordable too for agencies to hire me to photograph their talent and produce black and white because black and white was cheaper than color. And they could do massive runs of 100 headshots or a 1,000 prints of the band to distribute. So and most of the work I was doing was in black and white. And even when I did was commissioned to do a portrait or a wedding or something like that, I would, if I could, convince everybody involved to do it in black and white, I'd do it in black and white. And so, yeah, so that's, so analog photography is definitely where I started. And the zone system was the language that I learned to be able to improve my prints and to be able to improve my exposures. So I studied Angel Adams' books on the zone system and other people's books on the zone system. It was a subject that's been written about pretty extensively and did a lot of testing and a lot of trial and error. You just come up with analog photography. You come up with really being skilled with metering and with exposing things so that you're drawing, you're bringing out your subject in the way you want, not necessarily just the way the camera wants to average everything out again to this mid-tone zone five. A little technical information is if you shoot a white wall with pretty well any camera and you look at the result, it's actually going to come out to be a gray wall. And if you photograph any black wall, black subject, it's pretty well going to come out to a, and be a gray subject. Like you've got a beautiful motorcycle that's all black and rich with black leathering stuff on black pavement. You photograph it, you're generally going to have a gray motorcycle on gray pavement. That's because if you're on auto with your meter, if you use the auto setting, it's going to just average everything out to a mid-tone gray. It's very accurate. Everything always comes out to a mid-tone gray, but of course your subject isn't always a mid-tone gray. And so that's where the zone system comes in. Being able to identify which zone your subject is on. Is it black? Is it white? Is it a dark gray? Is it a light gray? And then being able to think in terms of what zone does it actually fit into? And therefore, do I need to overexpose or underexpose to hit the zone that you want your subject to fit into? And that, in a nutshell, is what the zone system so with analog photography, I was using that. I'd use it with my prints. I'd use it when I'd speak to a printer. 
printing for me and we talk about what zone I wanted each thing to be in. I want the sky to be a zone six. I want the shadow beside this tree to be a zone three. I want the tree itself to be a zone five. We could actually talk like this and it simplified things. It made it easy to discuss it just like a musician would, you know, that's a C, no, you're C flat. I want that to be C. Similar kind of thing. But the exciting thing for me was when digital hit, I realized that, my God, this metadata, all this metadata has been recorded. When you photograph, are you an F5.6 or an F4 or a 2.8? Your shutter speeds record it, you know, one over 1 25th of a second or one second or 8 thousandth of a second. That's recorded. Your ISO is recorded. All this information is recorded. So, and then every pixel has information in it about in terms of where it sits on a range of tones from black to white. So I thought, my God, Ansel Adams would just drool over this information. <laughs> this would simply, this is brilliant stuff. I love this. And because of my experience and understanding of the zone system, I set out to relate it to four digital photographers so that they could take this very simple way of communicating about photography and apply it to the information that's being recorded whenever they shoot. And so that's how I got involved with <laughs> that. Or rather, that's how I applied the zone system to, to digital photography. It was just a natural fit because right. there's math involved. And In digital photography, zone system mostly applies to when you actually do your retouching and editing because uh, when you photograph it captures all the information or am I wrong? You use it definitely when you're shooting as well because again, okay. a digital camera like a film camera, if I'm shooting some very white lilies on a white background, it's a very bright scene. And if I have my camera on auto and there's t everyone's got a camera, everybody's shooting. So the vast majority of people are shooting on automatic. So therefore, the vast majority of people would photograph that flower and end up with a gray flower or a mid-tone flower and a mid-tone background. They don't have a choice. That's what the camera is going to do. So the zone system applies right there because understanding the zone system, you understand what the lightness or the darkness of your tone, and therefore you have to compensate for what the camera is going to do in order to get an accurate exposure. Yeah, basically, it's kind of counterintuitive because when it's white, you have to overexpose. <laughs> That's right. When, you're, when it's white, you have to... How is that counterintuitive? Because it's white, your immediate reaction is it's white. You're so right. No, for sure. It's exactly, it's bright. And in reality, it, you may not want it to be as, as gray as the camera by default in auto mode will make it, but you may want it to be a little bit darker than its true color because you might want to saturate it a little bit. Snow is a great example where the snow, it can be glaring and so bright that you really don't see any texture in the snow, but it's often pleasing to have texture in the snow. Right. And so you want to bring, you'll want to bring your exposure down. You'll want to underexpose the snow a little bit. So your camera by default in auto mode is actually doing that for you. And yeah. sometimes it's doing it a little bit too much. It's very gray snow where you don't want it to be quite that gray. But oftentimes people will find the shots of winter scenes pleasing because the camera has underexposed it just because it's trying to make it fit into a zone five. So quite often I feel most of the tutorials that you have in YouTube, somehow photography has become this really technical thing that you have to mm. master. It's all numbers and stuff. Somehow it 
does it's an art form front and center well it's an art and a science right yeah but it's more of an art the science follows the art it's not the other way around well i mean art what's art what is art art is communication that's what art is it's a quality of communication it's really good communicator that's why we admire artists so much because they're amazing communicators musically or visually they're communicating and so you're totally right but without the science we can't perform that kind of art that's right. one of the reasons i'm shooting right now i'm doing fine art photographing cameras and it's kind of a crazy idea i take pictures of cameras and a lot of people might think well it's a camera what are you taking a picture of that for and or it's like this mundane thing that you can see anywhere i mean and you go to stores or all over the place there's always promotional pictures of cameras how is that fine art? And uh, that's a really good question. And I don't know if I have the answer to that, but what I try to do is because I have such a love, such an affinity for cameras because it's my tool. It's like a musician would love his guitar or his piano and a painter would love his brushes and paints and they just love being around their, the tools of their medium. So I love camera equipment. And when we moved from analog to digital, I had all this analog camera equipment that I loved, but was no longer using because it just wasn't practical. So they just kind of sat up there on the shelf and this sort of thing. And I'd look at them from time to time. And then I thought, you're just taking a, an object, a mundane object, and you're really making a portrait of it. And I thought, well, why not make a portrait of my cameras and of cameras in general? It's just now it's turned into I'm sort of researching and seeking out really special cameras that are unique for a variety of reasons or historically or something like that and photographing them. But I'm doing it digitally with a whole process that I use to really get a very high res, high resolution image. And I work it a lot in post-production to make it really sing and all that kind of stuff. So hopefully these cameras, hopefully when people come in and they see it in my studio or in the gallery, and they see a, a camera, they go, wow, look at that. That's I'm hoping they're going to see the, a camera with fresh eyes and start noticing how well it was designed or just the design elements of it and just the character it has. A lot of these cameras have a lot of character. I see that and, I'm, and I think that I enjoy looking at them and I'm hoping other people will find them pleasing to look at as well, right? You're listening to Photo Country with Rajiv. If you like this episode, do subscribe to my newsletter on Substack photocountry.substack.com. Now back to the conversation with Gary Ray Rush. Yeah, so talking about cameras, Nikon and Canon, the news come out that they'll stop producing DSLRs and going to mirrorless full-time. What do you think of that? about that? Is it natural evolution? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's just the future. I think the great thing about digital photography actually is that it's changing really rapidly. And there's a lot of research and development that's ongoing and continuous, and it will continue, and I'm very excited about it. With film photography, it really had reached a point of, that's the technology. It's really not going to get better than this. You can put out another camera and say that we've added this bell or this whistle, but really, this is it. Once they've, I mean, there was work to be done with the autofocus lenses and stuff like that. But the camera body itself, I mean, it had been perfected. Same thing with enlargers in a dark room. You really weren't going to come up with a better enlarger. I mean, they were as good as they were going to get. We had really brought it to state of the art, and no one was complaining. It was great. You could predict your results, and 
the results were fantastic. With digital photography, when it first came out, and a lot of us were forced to get into it because the market demanded it, but it was producing crap. I mean, the, the sensors were very low res. They were not recording color accurately. It was really a very horrible state of affairs. And you had to spend <laughs> a fortune to, to buy anything of quality, and the quality really wasn't there. So there was a lot of work needed, and now it's amazing. It's definitely surpassed film in my view although there is characteristics of film that is very valid and there's characteristics about it that are wonderful and lovely i think most of us will always appreciate but the doors that open to you with digital photography are much greater you've got much more room for creativity or there's just much more options so you can shoot more accurately you can shoot in low light level situations you can shoot with all kinds of different light sources all this stuff was very complicated and difficult with film and it's made very simple now and easy with digital. And so you're seeing photographs you've never seen before. So digital has really opened the door to all kinds of new adventures with photography. And an ultimate is the James Webb Space Telescope. And just the images oh, that's coming out of that is just mind-blowing. Isn't that amazing? It's just mind-boggling. Coming back to your journey, how did you actually start with photography? What inspired you to take up the camera? Was it like your dad gave you an old camera? I was very visual as a kid. I would point things out all the time. We'd go for a walk and I'd be pointing things out. Look at this, look at that. My stepmother actually bought me a camera when I was 12 for Christmas. Actually, no, my godmother got me a camera a couple of years before that, a brownie, an old brownie camera. It wasn't like, you know, oh my God, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life or anything, but I enjoy taking pictures with it. So yeah, I always enjoyed being behind the camera, but just as a sort of a hobbyist kind of thing. But in my early 20s, I must have been 22, I think I was, encountered the book, The Family of Man. And it was based on an exhibit that was done in New York City at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Edward Steichen was the guy behind the whole thing and a photographer from the from the early part in mid-1900s that was very influential. So what he did was he curated, he did an open call to photographers all over the world, professionals, amateurs, anybody could submit photographs. So photographs come in from all over the world. So you'd have a picture of some very well-to-do family in Britain in a very posh kind of dining room experience, having breakfast together. Then you'd have a family around a campfire in Africa with a little hut behind them, having breakfast together. And you'd have a marriage in some very posh upscale thing over here and some very sort of peasanty, barefoot experience over there where, you know, but the spirit was the same. It was the family of man. So you had, he covered work, marriage, love, war, games, playfulness, children, the arts. So all of these common themes, and you could see people from a variety of different backgrounds and countries and everything like that. So I just came across this book one day, actually at a friend's house, and also was printed on really nice paper. It was above and beyond. The printing in the book was really good. So the blacks were really kind of inkwell black, and the whites were very ivory looking. It was a stunning book and a beautiful experience. And I just loved the concept. It's like street photography was what most of it was, just going out and photographing your community. So I was so taken with it that the next day I went and bought a 35 millimeter camera. It was something like a Nikon FE kind of camera, just a basic 35 millimeter camera. I set up a darkroom within the week and I just started shooting. And I knew that this is something I'd love. I, I felt passionate about it. 
was something I'd love to pursue professionally. And I just thought, sort of thinking, how can I do that? And so on. For about 10 years, I was working in sales and advertising and marketing. And always with this idea of the back of my mind to open up a studio. And so finally, when I was around 35, I opened my first studio with my wife, Elaine Fleck. We opened a studio together and started putting out cards and knocking on doors. But that was the inspiration for it, that one book, actually. I mean, there's been many books since and many influencers since, but that's where it started for me. If you take that book, it's a curated experience, right? From various photographers from around the world. Yeah. Isn't that something that you're also doing in the gallery? You are curating photography from around the world. It's kind of full circle, I suppose. That is very true. That's a very good observation. And that's one of the things I love about being a director in a gallery is that the community and the submissions we receive from artists all over the world and dealing with artists daily. And so seeing all of these different stories, but you're right, the common denominator is there's stories from other people and it's the stories of mankind and it's the stories of what's happening in contemporary culture. So I find it very stimulating. And that's true. <laughs> <laughs> so talking about curation, how important is mentorship for an artist? I see that you do mentorship as part of your gallery experience or services that you offer. I felt that mentoring is important for the growth of any artist uh, in right. general, but especially photography because the technology is so democratic. There's so much people entering the field because the entry barrier is pretty low because the cameras right. are very cheap these days. So as a growing artist, you're really struggling. What is your strength? How do I differentiate? Because everybody seems to be a portrait photographer, but I love landscape. But how do I then have a sustainable livelihood by shooting landscape, for example? I do offer one-on-one -on -one lessons, right, with photographers. So there is a mentoring aspect to that because it's one-on-one. -on -one. The ideal photographer that I'm working with is someone that's actually preparing for a fine art show or that needs help gathering up the images and working in the direction of a show. Now, I do have to say at this point, too, that Elaine Fleck, who owns the gallery that I'm the director of, she mentors artists. She's an amazing mentor of not just photographers, but also visual artists in general. And a lot of artists do seek her out for mentorship. And then with me, of course, my specialty is photographers. I generally do three classes a week, three mornings a week with three different photographers. And I do a series of six classes with each photographer. But if you go to my website, you'll see that's all listed out there, what I provide. Teaching is just very important because, I, and I think most artists enjoy sharing their knowledge. We invest a lot of time into gaining it and have a lot of experiences just professionally and artistically, and it's wonderful to be able to share it. I also find it makes you a better artist, or in this case, a better photographer, because in order to communicate and to help other people, you really need to understand the subject well yourself. And I know from personal experience that I go further in my research and my understanding and my testing and just gaining knowledge with photography because of mentoring and teaching others. It inspires me to, to know my subject really well, as opposed to just getting the result that I want for something. I'll often think, how can I help someone else get this result? And so that's where I generally put in the extra time and study so that I, so that I can be more helpful to the people I'm working with. So talking about taking photography as a profession, lots of people, I mean, including you and me, enter this 
because you love it, you know, it's a passion. But when you think of it as a career, as a job, that's a totally different question. When it becomes a job, then you, you have deadlines and all those kind of things that are associated with the job. So how do you keep your passion alive? That's a question that I often struggle with. I know a lot of people do struggle with that. And I see, I hear that in, in your question. Well, I think that for a real artist, like a real creator, it's like they can't do anything else. It's not a choice. I mean, it's a real compromise to have to do something else. I'm driven to photograph and to create, and uh, I'm going to figure out a way to do that. And that burning, undeniable, unstoppable passion has to be there because you're right. Everyone's got a camera. And also, you have to be ready to pivot and change. I know that I've lost tons of jobs to people that will undercut me. Kids come out of university, they've got a camera, they want to be a photographer, they'll do it for free. How do you compete with that? Yeah, you can't so, compete with free. <laughs> <laughs> hard to compete with that. So, And I'm not interested in competing with that because, I mean, the truth is a lot of artists will do things for free because they just love doing it. But the reality and the practicality of that is you're going to hit hit a wall try, doing that. It's just not going to work out for you. So you have to be prepared to pivot. You have to be intelligent and smart and work things out. Just to close off this conversation, one last question. As a photographer, you're faced with this question. You love creating art, but you also want to make it a profession, right? So then you have two pathways. So one, you can be a commercial photographer or you can pursue fine art. But is that even a question? Can you do both? Or is that a personal choice? It's really up to the individual. But if I look at my experience and the experience of many photographers that I know and many artists that I know, commercial work pays the bills. And a lot of people can do commercial work because they're great artists. And they get hired because they're great artists. I can think of another guy that is an amazing art director. He's very sought after. He's made a lot of money as an art director. He manages big projects and he's very well employed. And he's also an artist. His name's Todd Lawson, an amazing artist, an amazing art director. And you can't really separate the two. I think because he's an amazing artist, he gets hired, he gets jobs, he gets employed. He gets opportunities. Because he's actually an artist, he finds the time and pumps out work because he just cannot do otherwise. And that's the way it is with artists. They have to create. So he finds a way. The first thing I did as a photographer was I started looking at how can I get paid to be a photographer. So I started doing commercial work, portraits, family portraits. I did private schools, graduation pictures. I photographed thousands of kids every year as a commercial photographer going to private schools and photographing everybody. So for me, the interesting thing is, as an artist, I found that a lot of people go, oh, that would be boring, that would be repetitive, and that would be terrible. I couldn't stand doing that. Personally, I love doing it. I love the activity. It was very physical, and I really enjoy that. I love hauling my equipment in, setting it up, breaking it down all part of the experience. And every single time I took a picture, I was there taking that picture. And because that's the way I am. It's every single time I clicked that shutter, I was looking at something and capturing something. Even if it was a student in a private school that was just there because they were told to sit on the chair and get your picture taken. <laughs> I would engage them. I would do something to make it communicate. 
And then I got hired and rehired and recommended and all of that kind of stuff. And then after about 10 years of that, we kind of packed up our tent and moved on to an art gallery. Because the whole time I was doing commercial work, I was also shooting for my own enjoyment. On weekends, I'd go out and do landscapes and this sort of thing. And, and around 2005, Elaine said, let's take your work and go find a venue for me. I'm going to sell it. And we did that. And based on that experience, we realized we were kind of going and setting up temporary tables or rooms to sell work and art in the park kind of things. We're doing well. We're selling work. This is working as like a summer thing. So we went up and did that. And so we crunched the numbers and decided we should open up a gallery. And so we did. But based on that experience of selling my work on, as most artists start with, doing sort of art in the park, right? So for us, it was sort of a progression from commercial to commercial. It's still yeah. fine art. It's still commercial. We have a gallery. Right. We have rent to pay and artists to pay and venues to furnish and to keep up and openings to have. So there's a lot of expense involved. And so work needs to be sold. But there's, and I think probably the most enjoyable thing through it all is when people come in and they look at the work and they're elevated and they go, you made my day. You know, it's, it was mundane. I came in here. I saw the work. You guys engaged me. This was amazing. And sales will happen. But just that whole interaction as well is really rewarding. And you feel like you're contributing and you are contributing to your community and to the aesthetic and to the cultural life of your community. Yeah, great. That's totally it, right? That's why we do what we do. That's totally it. Thanks a lot, Gary. Thanks for your time. It was great talking to you. And I think we covered a lot of ground. A lot always, of interesting things we talked about. Absolutely. I really <laughs> enjoy talking to you. I'm always interested in talking photography. And uh, thank you for the opportunity. I enjoyed it a lot. Thanks, Gary. That was an hour filled with great information. You can get in touch with Gary through his website, GaryRayRushPhotography.com or through Instagram. His handle is GaryRayRush. He offers courses and mentorship programs on photography. Do get in touch with him if you're keen to improve your photography skills. Continuing with the focus on Ansel Adams and his work, on the next episode, we feature a conversation with Dr. Rebecca Senf, a leading authority on Ansel Adams. Dr. Senf is the chief curator of the Center of Creative Photography in Tucson, Arizona. She has authored a book on the early work of Ansel Adams. It's called Making a Photographer. That's a great episode. Don't miss it. That's all I have for you in this episode of Photo Country, my friends. Do share this podcast with your friends who love photography like I do. You can also sign up for my newsletter at photocountry.substack.com and you'll never miss an episode of mine. Till the next episode, this is Rajiv signing off.